Business Class listeners, you are tuned in to episode number 198 on Wisco Weekly. And on this episode, I had a very interesting discussion with my guest, Mr. Austin Prochko of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I first came across Austin after he penned an article entitled Victims of Communism Day, and I will post this link on the episode page. Austin and I get into a very interesting discussion as we first talk about his experience with communism through the stories of his grandmother. His grandmother was born and raised in communist Czech Republic, or I should say communist Czechoslovakia, which later became the Czech Republic, which then evolved again to Czechia. And, you know, I personally have some experiences with the Czech Republic as my wife was born and raised there. And she experienced the latter stages of communism up until the Velvet Revolution in the early 90s. And so Austin and I discuss what communism was like through his grandmother's eyes, how that plays out in the United States, and specifically how that plays out in the corporate culture of the United States. This was super interesting to follow this journey and connect communism to ESGs, environmental, social, and corporate governance. These ESGs are big initiatives by companies that are a little bit suspect in a way that is anti-capitalist, anti-free market. I will admit that I am still in my infancy stages of learning more about ESGs, but this was definitely a discussion that now I will be following ESGs more closely. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Mr. Austin Prochko. Also, if you haven't had the chance, I encourage you to listen to the mini-series I produce with Automotive Mastermind called Predicting the Next Paycheck. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts or Spotify by searching Predicting the Next Paycheck, and I will include links on the episode page. As we get into 2022, if building your financial stability, if building financial wealth is part of your plans, this is a really good episode for you to think about how you can start to do that. I'll give away the spoiler alert. If you could find stability in life, in your finances, you can find predictability. And that's ultimately what you want to be able to do in order to build financial independence, wealth, security, all of that stuff. If you can find stability, you will find predictability. And so if you have a listen to that episode, hopefully it'll drum up some ideas for you on how you can make your way forward in creating this life of financial stability. Anyhow, thanks for tuning in to Wisco Weekly. I always appreciate your listens. And please, if you don't mind, I appreciate if you could provide a rating or review on Apple Podcasts of the show. I greatly appreciate it. Now, let's get into the episode with Mr. Austin Prochko. You are now tuned in to the Wisco Weekly Experience. Mabuhay, bienvenidos, vitaite, willkommen, and welcome to Wisco Weekly Business Class listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the show. 
And business class, if you're hearing me a little bit congested, apologies, apologies. I have a little bit of allergies going on today, but that's not going to stop me. I'm not weak. I'm not weak. And you know why I'm not weak is because my wife, who grew up in a communist country, keeps my ass in check. Forgive the language, but it is the truth. And so this is where it's kind of nice to enjoy a conversation with another gentleman who I just came across. On the Texas Public Policy Foundation, they have another operation called the, let's see, it's called the, it's called the Canon Online. And the Canon Online exists to help promote the ideas that will help keep Texas Texan and help keep America the most free and prosperous nation in the history of the world. The history of the world. Well, this history is as 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 you may have already known, is kind of being rewritten a little bit, right? We're kind of taking some cues from another era of uh, of of the globe. And I came across my desk, uh, came across my guest as he wrote this article in the Canon Online, dubbed "Victims of Communism Day." My guest is the grants manager at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He has been an educator, and he has worked on political campaigns throughout the state of Texas. He received his BA in politics from Hillsdale College, go Chargers, and he received a master's in politics from the University of Dallas, go Crusaders, and he's also pursuing a PhD in fatherhood, which will be an 18-year journey for him. Men and women, please welcome to the show, Mr. Austin Prochko. Austin, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Welcome to Visco Weekly, Austin Prochko. <laughs> I hope you have your vodka here. Uh, sadly, I don't. <laughs> Austin, you wrote a piece in the Canon Online, which caught my attention. Uh, again, as I had mentioned, my connection and my, um, you know, how I follow a lot of Europe and communist Europe is from my wife, who was born and raised in the Czech Republic. You have some very novel experiences yourself. I'm hoping that we can kind of start the conversation by getting a background on who you are, by understanding a little bit about your family roots. So let me kind of just read from your article here, Austin, and then if you can uh, let me know uh, a, a little bit more about this, yes? Sure thing. Okay, so you wrote... During my grandmother's childhood, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia was moving to purge dissident elements from its society. Her school books were destroyed, math, science, and history, and literature were controlled or even replaced by the now-ascendant communists. Further down, you write, my great-grandfather, Yaroslav Rika, eventually realized that the only way to save his family from blatant brainwashing was to flee. What do you remember about your great-grandparents, your grandparents' experiences, and how has that translated into your perception of the world? So uh, I'm lucky my grandmother's still alive, and so I get to talk to her quite often. She's not doing great, um, but she still communicates all these stories to me. I met my great-grandmother. Sadly, I never met my great-grandfather, who's the one who led his family out, um, but I'm told he was an amazing man. 
Um, I have been told story after story, and my sister and I have been working together to write down and record all these stories from my grandmother who experienced communism growing up. And before that, she experienced Nazism as Cheka was taken over by the Nazis in the 19, late 1930s, early 1940s, lived through World War II. The communists were kind of welcomed as saviors. They are, they're getting rid of these Nazis, the Germans, and then they promptly take over and everything is worse than it was under Nazi occupation. The stories I've heard from my grandmother um, that have really shaped my understanding of politics revolve around kind of how she was taught um, in Czechoslovakia because she was five when the communists took over. Sorry, not five. She was five when the Nazis took over. And then she was nine, 10, 11 under communist rule. Um, she talks about how they got rid of all the books. That was kind of the first thing that happened in the soft coup where the communist, uh, the Czechoslovak Communist Party took over the Czech government. There was a coup insofar as like there wasn't bloodshed, but the president was kicked out and the communists took over. They immediately purged the books and she worked from essentially paper packets for the vast majority of her time before her family fled, um, only getting books about a year for math and science before her family fled, and then only months ahead, months before they fled for history, English, um, grammar, all of these important books. She kind of has a unique experience among a lot of the school kids of her age group because her father was a prominent member of the Telch community. So Telch is where she lived. It's a town in Czechoslovakia. He was a lawyer. He held three different law degrees in Czech law, Austrian law, and Roman Catholic canon law. And so kind of if there was some sort of legal or religious problem, people went to him. And so as a leader in the community, he was immediately on the Nazis radar, and he actually spent time in the concentration camps. And he was immediately on the communist radar because people kind of followed what he did. And so from day one, my grandmother, Eva, uh, or Eva, was kind of the target of a lot of the events in school. She was always given the lead role in the play or to sing the Soviet national anthem or to recite poems to uh, Papa Stalin as they were instructed to call him because they wanted to target her to bring my great grandfather down. And so she's very familiar with all this, and how that process works. Um, one of the things she likes to talk about is how the communists were, even at the very start, masters of psychology, of understanding how to get at people, how to break down what they believed, what they knew, and how to just completely wipe sort of the, the slate clean and come up and replace everything with their own ideology. Um, she said I mean, something profound to me, actually, yesterday we were talking about it, um, but I'll Yes. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty diabolical, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's like everyone has pressure points and, you know, you kind of know this just in business, right? If you want to get and squeeze and if you, if you want to uh, get the best deal in the negotiation, you kind of squeeze at pressure points. I mean, the fact that uh, the, the Nazis or, or the Russians were targeting your a great grandfather by attacking his daughter or by getting to him through his daughter was that's that's diabolical that's that's and that's kind of how it was is they knew that that was going to be the weak point that's what they wanted to go after um they had tried other things to discredit him they had tried coming up with false claims uh claiming that he was cheating his clients all these kinds of things and they had testimonies against him 
Um, but he managed to weather them because people respected him and he was res well respected in his community. Um, so he weathered those, but when they started going after his daughter, that was very problematic. Kind of the breaking point for everything was on Red Army Day, on a celebration of the Red Army. My grandmother was supposed to recite a newly composed poem to Papa Stalin. And my great grandfather said, you're not doing that. We're going to conveniently be out of town. Um, and that's really when the communists started to go after him um, really, really intensely insofar as trying to come up with false claims to get him into jail. Eventually, he got word that his the warrants for his arrest were being drafted, um, including some false claims about uh, how he had run his business and some other issues like that. And so with those warrants being drafted, he knew that he would be found guilty. And one of his friends who was a communist, because they'd been together in the concentration camps, said, you're going to be sentenced to the uranium mines for six years. This is a death sentence because the average life expectancy of a uranium miner at that time period was a little under five years. And so they essentially were going to kill him. And so with that and the fact that he couldn't stand watching my grandmother and her younger sister get brainwashed, they escaped across the border. Um, one of the interesting things, which, you know, with that article that I wrote, there's only so much space. Uh, he got in a lot of trouble consistently because they were trying to find proof that he was reteaching Czech history. My grandma would learn at school and then she would come home and her father would say, what did you learn? And she would tell him what she, what she had learned. And he would go through and say, well, this is correct. This is a fact. This is incorrect. This is correct. This is incorrect. And he would completely reteach her everything she learned over the course of the day, especially in literature and history. And so every single day she was essentially getting another school session as he was reteaching the false communist claims, um, this dialectic in communism that there's always someone who is the oppressor and there's always someone who's the oppressed. They apply that to the modern idea of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, right? The rich and the, the poor. And then they take that dialectic, that dichotomy between oppressor and oppressed, and they apply it backwards into all of history. And so that's a lot of what she was being untaught by my great grandfather is, no, this was not a situation of oppressor or oppressed. This was a beneficial situation for all parties involved or just reteaching uh, the lies that were placed in history to make Marxism, um, the Marxist Leninism that the communists subscribe to. You have to you have to fake history. You have to come up with your own version of history for these Marxist ideas to work. Otherwise, they just don't. Um, and so he was reteaching her and unteaching her some of that. So that was another big part of her life. When do you think that it clicked with your grandmother that what her father was teaching her was actually, you know, more historically accurate than what she was being taught? Like, do you think that you, you think that came to fruition like in her teenage years or later on? It actually came to fruition pretty early. Um, my grandmother is the smartest person I know. Um, and so she had learned history up through being nine years old and she had learned it a certain way. And her father had always been teaching her more. She'd always been learning more. And so when the communists came in, they reset everyone to where the class average was and she was above the average. And so she was further ahead in history. And so she noticed the rewrites. She said she was old enough at the time at 10, 11 to say, hey, I learned it one way. And now these new teachers 
are teaching it to me another way. And so she immediately had her father and her teachers in tension with each other. Uh, and her teachers were constantly trying to catch her father. And she learned very quickly that every time she told, you know, she raised her hand, she said, well, my father said this, that it's different. Her father would get in trouble um, and her family would be fined money or there would be policemen knocking at the door saying, hey, we heard you're teaching on communist thoughts. And so this was immediately kind of obvious to her or not obvious. It was apparent to her that what was being taught there had to be some sort of untruth in it because it conflicted with everything she learned previously. It conflicted with her values and it conflicted with what her father had been teaching her and was teaching her actively. Okay, I feel like to kind of conclude story one, that being, let's call this the great grandfather chapter. I, I hope there's a happy ending to this. What happened to your great grandfather? Um, so they escaped through Austria um, and then they were denied American, they were denied the ability to come into America because my great grandfather was born in Vienna and so they were worried he might be a closet Nazi. They spent 10 years in Australia working off an indentured servitude that they used to get there. And then they finally came into America because my great grandfather believed- What year that, would that been? That year uh, was in the 1950s. Um, okay. I have the exact naturalization document um, on my phone as I'm pulling it up, but their port of entry is interesting. It's actually San Antonio, which is abnormal for a port of entry because yeah. they took a boat over from Australia to Panama and then flew into San Antonio, um, which is just a very interesting time frame and a unique way for that all to have worked out. My grandfather passed away in, or my great grandfather passed away in America uh which is where he wanted to be because he felt that the constitution was one of the most powerful uh man-made works she was accepted into america in 1958 so in the late okay. 50s okay so 1958 is when your mother or your grandmother arrived in america with in her her sister and her parents okay and so, so let's talk about how this translates to how, you know, its impact on you. I mean, let me play the age card here a little, a little bit. You're in your twenties, thirties, mid twenties. Yes, sir. So mid twenties. So, I mean, here's the one thing, here's the bias that I will make on one hand. Like it always seems to me that my experience has been that anyone who has had some very deep roots in Europe tend to think about things a little bit deeper and they're a little bit more mature, if you will, than someone who is perhaps like born and raised in America at the same age. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for you, like you're in your mid twenties, how has this impacted you? You're, you're very young and I'm curious, what is the impact that it's had on you? So really my whole interest in politics, um, and that's where, that's what I'm doing. That's why I'm at TPPF. Uh, my whole interest in politics stems from listening to my grandmother's stories about communism. Cause there's, there's story after story. I, I could go on for probably over 24 hours on the stories I've heard. Uh, cause she also encountered communism later in life. Uh, and she was partially almost stoned to death in Cambodia as Pol Pot and his communists were taking over there. Um, but that's another story. Um, and so like this understanding of communism kind of 
in my high school years and early freshman year of college, it really gave me an impetus to look into and understand communism more. How can it have all of these evils? How can all of this horrible injustice flow from it? Um, and in looking into communism more, I grew to understand it more. And that helped me define myself politically. Um, partially, originally, it's like, well, I'm not that. Um, and then coming through and figuring out what I am. And that has set me on the path where I am today, which is staunchly anti-communist and very, very American um, in that sense, because I have all of this background of not just loving American history, all the things we've done, freedoms, rights, everything that we've earned through the American Revolution and the political philosophy of the Enlightenment, um, but also understanding all the horrible things that go out the window, all the horrible things that happen when you take that liberty when you take those rights and you throw them out the window and say, you're all exactly equal, you're all slaves to the state, go work. So what would be like the top things then against communism, right? It's, it's like if, if you're, it, it's almost one thing to speak out against communism or it's one thing to say you're pro-capitalism, right? But you specifically say that you are very strongly anti-communist. So what is, what is it about communism that infuriates you the most to be so anti? Uh, it's going to be the the concept of class and the way that that plays out in communism. Communism uh, is based off of Marxist ideology, more specifically Marxist-Leninist ideology. Lenin sort of took what Marx did and said, now we're going to add more guns to it and we're just going to oppress everyone until it works. And it essentially says, as, as classes, we don't think for ourselves. If you're bourgeoisie, you're bourgeoisie, and you have your certain set of thoughts, you have your certain sets of beliefs and principles, and they differ from culture to culture, but you're set in a certain mindset, and that set is objectively wrong, morally despicable, and you deserve to be put to death. Um, and if you, are, you have the proletariat, the oppressed, who are also set in their mindset, they are determined by their external factors and everything they think everything they do is determined by their external factors and they are morally correct because they are the oppressed and they deserve to kill the bourgeoisie and take everything from them and so that big idea that you are you are defined and you are unable to escape from your external factors is 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 this horrible idea it's so oppressive because if you're poor, then you will always be poor. Whether or not you have a lot of wealthy, you're stuck in this mindset of proletariat or you're stuck in this mindset of the bourgeoisie, whether you're wealthy or not. And the idea eliminates this concept of freedom, the concept of free will that we determine our own things, our own lives, all of that. It's not determined by us. It's determined by what our class is. Um, and the other thing with communism that I'm staunchly against my grandma put it very profoundly when I was talking to her yesterday. She was like, communism is a culture of envy. Um, communism is built on capitalizing on the fact that often those who do not have want to have, right? Um, we always want more. And what communism does is it exploits the fact that we want more, no matter how wealthy we are, whether we're incredibly wealthy or not wealthy at all, we always are going to want something else. There's always something we want. And communism exploits that and it essentially says, you see those people who have, you need to take it from them because they don't deserve it because they're horrible people. Um, and it separates us all into the haves and the haves nots, right? There's so many different ways to say how it separates us, the bourgeois, the proletariat, the poor, the rich, the haves, the have nots. But it capitalizes 
on this idea, this base human instinct for always wanting more. And it says, this is what defines you. And this justifies violence and bloodshed and oppression. Um, and I, that is just to me, morally decrepit, it's ethically despicable and it's leads to so many evils. You, you kind of, it's something we don't read as much. We read about the Holocaust and how Hitler killed so many Jews and so many of the ethnic minorities. And then we kind of skip over the fact that under the Stalinist purges, two, three, maybe even four or five times as many people were killed, um, not necessarily for their ethnicity, but simply for thinking the wrong way or for owning land. That was something that people were killed for. They were, you, you own land, you could own an acre and you farmed just to feed yourself. You were, you were called a kulak and you were sent to the gulags and worked and worked to death. And so it's this idea of separating people into the haves and have nots. And that justifies all sorts of horrible, horrible evils. So, you know, the, the, the logical conclusion of communism is to kind of end in this area of have and have nots that is really undergirded by, well, to move from one sector to the other, there has to be a form of violence that's going to occur. So that, that, that is the logical conclusion. However, before you get to that, and I, and I hope this doesn't like discount th that conclusion, before you get to that, as you had mentioned, like you do get to this point of you are looking in communism to exploit people for these gains, right? I could supplant communism with capitalism, and that statement would still be correct. That in a, in a capitalist world, you are still exploiting labor workers for gains, and again, those gains can go to the capitalist class. Mm -hmm. Why is it that you are so attracted then to, you know, the U.S. capitalism? What what attracts you to U.S. capitalism? Um, U.S. capitalism. I if we're talking about capitalism laid bare, like just the pure idea of only market forces, um, there 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 can definitely be some issues with that. But with U.S. capitalism, we also have our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, the idea that each person is made. Um, and they have, they're all made equal. They have inalienable rights that can never be taken away from them. Um, and this is something that communism rejects. Communism rejects the idea of rights. It says, you don't technically have a right to your life. If the government decides you need to die for the good of the whole, then you're killed, done. No questions asked, no, no thoughts to the due process. In American capitalism, we have, Yes, there is definitely, it's not a perfect system. Nothing, nothing can truly be a perfect system, but we have rights, we have protections, we have the ability to speak freely, to say what we believe versus communism says, if you don't agree with what we're saying, what the party in charge says, then you are a wrong thinker and you need to be imprisoned or beaten until you believe what we believe or you just need to be killed. Um, and this gets really, really exploitative you read Solzhenitsyn, um, who's a Russian author who went through the gulags. He was one of their, he was a very good artillery captain in World War II. He knew what he was doing, but he criticized Stalin um, in a letter, in a private letter. And so off to the gulags, he went for 10, uh, almost 10 years. Um, and so that's not something we really see in America. I can criticize any of the administrations as much as I want, and they're not going to send me to jail for that. 
Um, and so there is that big difference in the respect of human dignity versus saying humans don't have dignity. All that matters is this class struggle until we're all one homogenous class. I mean, this does start to take us a little bit more into some of the different cultural shifts that have happened in terms of free speech in America, whether if that is on an individual basis, whether that's on a, a you know, a, 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 a private business basis, right, where um, you're, I mean, you have big tech who can come in here and essentially, you know, censor you remove you off a platform, remove you from your well-being, uh, if, especially if this is how you make money. I mean, are, are, we, are we embodying already what is already, you know, communism being implemented, communism light? I would, I would say to a certain extent we are. And there, there is a difference between communism and socialism. Um, in America, there's a lot of people who are openly socialist, uh, which looks to spread the wealth, it looks to do all of these things, and then there's not as many people who are communists because communism has caused so many evils, but they do both harken back to this idea that ultimately the collective will, um, the collective will as in uh, their will to do certain things will always supersede the individual will. And so that will abolish private rights, private property. And so the collective will always knows best. And that's something we're already definitely seeing in America with the way big tech works. Big tech works. It says, we're the collective will, we know best. And so we can silence those that we don't like. And that's not a governmental action. Um, it's a private action. And then it gets, it gets really, really sticky and complex when we're looking at government actions versus private actions versus the actions of individuals. Um, but there, there is a lot of bad. There's also, we see in, especially in college campuses, where free speech is really, really constricted and shut down, where we're not going to let certain people talk because their talk might be offensive, or we're, we're not going to allow people to say certain things, um, even things that are not hateful, just saying, well, you know, sometimes I think that, you know, maybe I like to go to church and you're not allowed to advocate for going to church anymore, or any of these kinds of things. This runs into the big issue where we have with censorship in America, but it's not coming from the government, which makes it very confusing sometimes. Well, yeah, I, I think that's the part that's I'm curious about on your end, right? Again, 25 years old, there's confusion about how this is playing out in the corporate sector. But, you know, arguably, one of the things that you could look at with big tech and their censorship is there, you know, a lot of these big techs, the big tech companies are publicly traded. A lot of Big, a lot of the biggest companies are publicly traded. They, you know, specifically, let's say if you're a company in the NASDAQ, at least I know this, if you trade on the NASDAQ, you have to maintain an ESG, an environmental, social, uh, corporate governance, uh, you know, model within your business. So ESGs are kind of this gray area now in the United States that, you know, is this not kind of the gray area that floats between communism and capitalism? It definitely is. And I would argue that ESG uh, investing, the environmental, social, and governance investing, really starts to move towards communism um, into the socialism. Because what it does is it takes what would theoretically be the actions of private individuals and understanding how, you know, that invisible hand, to quote, you know, the author of, of of how all of this works. Sorry, Adam Smith um, yeah, yeah. had a little bit of a, a mind blank there. 
um, the invisible hand is supposed to move things, people acting what's in their best interests. Now we see ESG investing where it essentially says the Austin, so just real quick, explain the invisible hand um, to listeners here. Uh, it's this idea, kind of the foundational idea of capitalism, that everyone does what's best for themselves. And in doing what's best for themselves, they provide a positive benefit to the society. Um, the Essentially, the idea of market forces working together, unconsciously, unplanned, deliver better products. People in competition um, will deliver better products. You're competing with someone else. Um, you want to attract more customers. So for the same quality product, you lower your prices or for the same price, you offer a higher quality product. And what that does is it kind of spiral. The idea is it'll spiral upwards and now we'll get better quality products at lower prices as everyone's competing, serving themselves and accidentally serving everyone else. Um, and this is very opposed to the idea of communism, where it says people can't serve themselves, they can't serve everyone else. The government, the, the powers that be, know what's best, and we're going to plan everything for you. Market prices, there is no market. We're setting the prices at this much, and the government owns everything. And, and so how does that translate to ESGs and, and how ESGs are essentially anti-invisible hand then? ESGs are definitely anti-invisible hand because they essentially say, we're not going to let you invest or we're, we're going to advise against, right? Because it's not a hard and fast rule and it differs from company to company. But we're going to advise against investing in certain products that we don't like. And ESGs are advised by kind of the national group think, the politically correct group. ESGs all fall into politically correct. One of the big things that's on the chopping block right now with ESGs is if you do ESG investing, you're not allowed to invest in any company that uses fossil fuels, any of the you know dirty non-green fuels. So if it's coal, natural gas, oil, you're not allowed to invest your money in that, even if it would make a lot of sense to invest your money. The invisible hand would say, hey, this, this is about to explode. The stocks are gonna go up. It's gonna be good for you to invest in this company. So you invest in the company, the company comes out, it makes more gas or it makes more oil or more energy. And that leads to lower energy prices for us. I know in the summer, I would definitely love lower energy prices here in Texas. Um, but I would love them that. low right now. I mean, I don't know what it's like in Texas and California. I'm starting to pay over $5 and I'm, I'm almost double your age. I'm 42. And this is the first time in my life that I'm experiencing gas at over $5. It's always crept up there. You know, don't get me wrong. I, I can remember five years ago, six years ago, it would always creep up there, but it would never get past $5. And finally it got there, you know, just a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago. The, I, I remember being very young in Texas and seeing gas like close, close to a dollar a gallon, which was so nice. And right now, as far as I can see, the highest price is holding steady at $2.99. It's like the gas companies here are afraid to breach that $3 barrier but it's, it's going to happen. I remember when I first started driving, it cost me about 15 bucks to fill up for a tank of gas. Um, I was driving a Honda Fit, which is a very fuel efficient car um, and the tiny little gas and not safe at all, um, but it was cheap. And now I'm looking at 30, 40, $50 as I'm trying to fill up my tank. And that really affects what we're able to do. Um, okay, but this so let me, let me point, let me, let me, let me poke holes a little bit in what you're saying here and, and tell me if, uh, Tell me where maybe I'm wrong or I'm, I'm, I'm misunderstanding. So I understand what you're saying with regards to how ESGs 
could be anti-invisible hand or are anti-invisible hand. You have companies that are no longer making decisions based on the interest of, of providing value to their customers. When they provide value to customers, there's inherently value built into the system and that just kind of replicates itself over and over again. Whereas ESGs, again, they, they, they are not that, okay? Not to say that it doesn't have components of that, but I also feel like the way that you've explained it, it puts ESGs in this monolith that just because a company is you know, involved in the oil space and now all of a sudden because you're involved in the oil space, you can't, or at least it's not advised to invest in them. Well, that's, I mean, isn't that just one pillar, the environmental pillar of ESG? What does that have to do with S or what does that have to do with G? Um, so the, there's an argument that the oil space is actually also going to be involved with S, um, the social aspect, because we see the uh, current concern about climate change. We see the Green New Deal. We see all of this. And this is very much an environmental thing, but it's also a huge social issue. And people are very upset about it. It's also a huge government issue. Um, so there's a certain extent where it fulfills all of them, but these aren't the only companies that are being affected. Another one um, is you look at the social, very specifically a social concern, is other major groups like uh, Ruger and Storm, Smith and Wesson, Remington, uh, all of these firearm manufacturers are also unable to be invested or unable to find as many loans as they used to. And a lot less people are investing in them because society has turned against firearms and the, the correct thing says, well, guns are bad. Um, and so we need to divest from guns. We look at uh, governance investing. Um, it's that, that one gets a little harder because we don't often invest directly in the government, um, but we can see how there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of modern companies in America who do SG investing who refuse to, do business with anything from Israel because they don't agree with Israel's stances, the company, the country. And so they won't deal with any Israeli companies. Um, and so that's where we see a little bit of the governance coming in. So uh, according to NASDAQ, as they kind of list out their different criteria under these pillars of E, S, and G. So for instance, in G would be board diversity board independence, incentivized pay, collective bargaining, supplier code of conduct, which that could definitely be, you know, the import-export, um, ethics and anti-corruption, data privacy, ec external assurance, again, that could be uh, import-export. So, you know, and, and, and business class listeners, I'll actually post this on the episode page here of the different criteria that at least the NASDAQ has identified to fit in this ESG. But if we go back to, let's say, the G, the governance, I mean, isn't looking at, you know, maintaining a board that would be diverse, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that, you know, wouldn't that be aligned with having a company that could model itself after its country? And hence, I mean, look, uh, there, there's, there's some truth. There's some truth, right? When you do buy from someone that looks like you. Right, like I, growing up in a in in the suburbs in a highly dominant area that was Mexican and Asian, right? Of course, I grew up always going to a Mexican restaurant, ordering from a Mexican person. It was usually a dirty Mexican restaurant, right? But I I take comfort in that. So then, as I got older, when I was thirty, thirty five, and I go to a dirty Mexican restaurant, 
yeah, like I was comfortable. I, I didn't fear it at all. So, you know, there's kind of that association, right, of, of, of doing business with someone that you've kind of known for so long. And it, wouldn't this kind of be the same in corporate governance where you'd want to have a board that was a bit more diverse? I mean, I guess I would, I, I guess I should clarify when I say diverse. I mean, it's to me, that doesn't have to mean race. And I, I would agree with that. I think there are definite benefits to having a diverse board. Um, the issue comes when that is mandated. And this is, this is again, this kind of moves back into the Marxist-Leninism. People start getting put into boxes that are determined by external factors. If you say your board has to be diverse, well, diverse is a really nebulous phrase. I could say, well, you know, everyone on the board has a different hair color. It's diverse. And so then they start to say, well, it has to include these kinds of minorities, or it can't have this much of the people in the majority. It has to be split this way between male and female. And then what we start having is there's a mandate of observing people's external characteristics and making calls on them purely on their external characteristics. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's bad. I think that the, the general goal of maintaining diversity, that is a good thing. But once we start mandating the maintenance of diversity, then we start to see this forcing of diversity and then our external characteristics become a factor of how we are, how good we are as at our job. How good are we? Well, we also have to include these external characteristics. And I, I see that as a major problem because now we're, <laughs> the problem with it, with ESG and with mandating diversity is now we are starting to judge people in a positive light, but we're still starting to judge people on their external factors, whether they're male, female, whether they're a minority or whether they're not a minority. And so that goes into the Marxism of we have to put people into boxes. There's the oppressors and there's the oppressed. And in kind of the current modern understanding, the oppressors are white people and the oppressed is everyone who's not white. And so we need to make sure that in our mandating diversity, we have to mandate that there's a better balance between the oppressor and the oppressed. And what that means is, well, we can't promote this white person who's really good because we already have too many white people on the board. Or we start looking at issues like that where we're maintaining quotas and we're judging people based on external characteristics, something they have no control over instead of internal characteristics. Is there conflation with a diverse board and how if you're on the board of a publicly traded company, let's take, for instance, uh, American Airlines. They're based in Texas, right? No. Yes, they're in there. Southwest. Are they, that's, I don't that's know about Southwest. American. Southwest. I'm thinking yeah. that was, that's, uh, that's Georgia American Airlines. So, so if we look at Southwest Airlines, big, huge company, publicly traded, don't know what their market cap is. I'm sure it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. So, and, you know, very influential, right? Big time company, right? So, wouldn't it would is it a conflation to say that the board should be diverse and then also kind of inherently know that look it's anyone who's going to be on that board is not going to be some you know poor dunk uneducated person and they're only going to be on that board because of the color of their skin there's there you know we kind of will accept the fact that look who even if that person is a person of color that they are still qualified in some capacity to serve in that position? Um, I, I would I would say I think that the board would naturally be diverse. Um, if we're if we're not hiring people based on the color, like if if it's not a good old boys club, 
good business sense, the invisible hand would drive the board to be diverse because you want you're serving a diverse, diverse community, you would want to have diverse opinions. And so the invisible hand would already drive these major corporations towards diversity. And so when we start mandating it, we're not letting the invisible hand drive these corporations towards diversity. We're starting to put in quotas. We're starting to put in these different ways of doing it. And this becomes problematic, um, not so much because that means that maybe someone is hired only because of the color of their skin. But normally, I think it will turn into people are not hired based on the color of their skin. Um, maybe they'll say, well, we have we have too many Asian people on this board and we need more other minorities to make us more properly diverse. There's not enough Asians on boards, Austin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that is a possibility when we start looking at that. And that's actually there's some lawsuits, um, not necessarily in board governance, uh, but there were some lawsuits when it came to college admissions. Um, against some of the Ivy League colleges regarding that, where they're like, oh, well, the Asians don't count for the minorities that when we're meeting our quotas uh, because they already overperform. And so there is there is issues we see with mandating diversity, not just with boards, but with other with other areas, um, college applications and all sorts of applications. And the issue I really take with it is a divorce. A, I, a diverse board should be good for the company. And so we should allow the company to make it so, as opposed to telling them they have to do this and they have to meet this minimum standard of diversity. Because immediately we're now starting to look at the color of people's skin or the their gender or their identity instead of looking at how they do. Because yes. excellence, no, excellence is not confined to a race. You're going to find excellent people in every race and those excellent people will get raised up. Um, but once we're starting to make judgment calls because we have to meet a minimum diversity, then we're starting to look at people on their external characteristics instead of on their internal excellence. Okay. Well, so what would be the logical conclusion, right? If, if we, we talked about earlier, kind of this idea that, you know, there's one half to the definition of communism that if you easily supplanted communism with capitalism, it would sound the exact same, the exploitation of the worker, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's that logical conclusion of communism that takes you to violence and death. So if, 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 if now we follow this kind of train of thought here, if ESGs are kind of this backdoor into communism with, within the U.S. corporate culture, what is the logical conclusion? Uh, the, logical, the logical conclusion to that is going to be kind of what we already see happening with critical race theory in the schools, where we start assigning um, morality to race. If you're a white person, then you don't even know how bad you are. You're bad because you have this history of oppression. And that'll start making its way up the corporate ladder. And soon there's eventually, soon, soon is a relative term, eventually what is likely to be is apart from the select group of white people who are okay because they're in the right political correct crowd, we're going to demand that everyone else be removed um, and that our board actually, we kill some of the diversity by removing one group out of it because they've been labeled as the oppressor. Um, and now our board is only diverse within a certain group of minorities and the majority is completely gone. And that's kind of the logical conclusion of where ESG goes. This is already where we see critical race theory going, where it's saying white people are bad in and of themselves um, because 
they're white and they don't know it. And so that's again, very Marxist. The proletariat are good and the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie are bad in and of themselves because of how they are, how they were born, what economic class they were born into. Except in the modern era, we've replaced economic class with ethnicity. Um, so economic class matters less, ethnicity matters more. Some people are good because of the ethnicity they're born into morally, and some people are bad morally because of the ethnicity they were born into. I would have to think there's, there is kind of this buffer though, right? It's like, even before you get to that logical conclusion, which, I mean, I don't know, that's 20 years, 60 years, 200 years away. Like, I guess let, let, let's, let's, let's put this in a time frame. Stating what you did about the logical conclusion, give us an idea of, I mean, again, you're 25, like what's the time frame here? See, that's a good question. Um, a year or two ago, I would have said this is 200 years in the future. We don't really have to worry about it now. But as we've seen kind of political tribalism really increase and we see the left and the right don't talk to each other anymore um, and there's more and more conflict, it, I could see it happening in two to three decades, but I could also see it happening in about 100 years. The, the problem with these kinds of things is it's it's very unpredictable because at the same time, much of this is ruled by a very loud minority, uh, not, not ethnically minority, but a very loud minority of group of people who are yelling very loudly. Um, and they're being the squeaky hinge that gets oiled. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it happens slowly. It's molasses that eventually kind of takes you over and like suffocates you. Right. And, and so I guess it, it's, it's kind of good to get an understanding of the time frame because like some of these things that are already happening, I don't know if I don't know if this would apply necessarily to ESGs, right? But if you just think of the, I mean, maybe on the G's end of the governance of some of these companies, and especially the governance as influenced by um, government spending. So, for instance, in the in, in the reconciliation bill that's coming up, right? One of the incentives tied in that reconciliation bill is allowing a higher subsidy for an electric vehicle as long as you buy from a company that is unionized, that has a public union, the United Auto Workers, right? So if you, if you bought a car from GM, if you buy an EV from GM, you would qualify for, I think it's like $12,000, $12,500 EV tax credit. If you buy a car from Tesla or Toyota, for instance, you only get like $4,500. So you're, you're already creating a class, right? Or you're, you're already creating a division of classes there where it's like, you're supposed to side with union workers. You're supposed to side with non-union workers, or you're supposed to side with a value system. There, there's already a class in that, no? There definitely is. Um, and I think as, as we see things continue, it's going to get worse. Um, both sides are, are becoming less and less able to speak to each other. Um, you talk to conservatives and they're, they, they think that all liberals must be stupid. You talk to liberals and they think all conservatives must be these horrible, evil people. Um, and, and there is partially, I think, due to the way big tech works, where it kind of isolates us in our own echo chambers to, to increase its viewership and increase your amount of engagement with the platform, which means there's more ads. And so they want you to be happy. And so they don't put opposing views in front of you. Each side is becoming more and more diverse, and it is becoming kind of a class war um, where I think uh, to the political, politically correct crowd, the woke crowd, what that ends up meaning is conservatives, the right, are the oppressor, and the left is the oppressed that is going to need to throw off the oppressor. And in America, we're kind of 
not the same as the communist countries where we saw in Russia, we had a bloody revolution where millions of people died in uh, the, the 19 teens, 1917, 18. We're not gonna have that anytime soon. But as we see like these racial tensions get more and more and we start to say, well, all of one group is good and all of one group is bad and you need to be angry at one group or the other, then that's the concern I have is we will probably see escalating tensions and eventually escalating tensions means violence um, from one side or the other. And I'm not gonna sit here with a crystal ball and say, I think one side, I know which side's gonna start it. And I would say, ultimately either side could start it. And that is terrifying um, to think about because we could, we could erupt into this massive inner class violence in the frame of a few decades. And that, that could be scary. Or if we're incredibly unlucky, it could happen much sooner. The Russians went from a czar straight to communism um, in the span of about 10 years as people, there were colleges in Russia and suddenly people said, hey, Marxism's pretty cool. And uh, Vladimir Lenin said, I, I love Marxism, let's have it. And within a year of him really starting to get stuff going, that millions of people were dead and communism was in control. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, there's, uh, there's actually a holiday, another, so again, you're, the article that she had written, uh, the victims victims of communism day victim victims of communism day um if now if i understand it too right you're using the date of november 7th which is ultimately the day that the bolsheviks took over russia and hence implemented uh communism for the first time you know kind of in that european uh nations or U european uh, continent yes Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and this this is this is a unique for us, insofar as this is Texas. The Texas legislature earlier this year recognized and designated this as a state day, um, and so this is the first time it's actually been cele celebrated. It's the wrong word. Observed um, in Texas, but it is observed throughout the world in varying different names and at varying days because. The Russians at the time of the the red the of red October the Russian Revolution they used an old older style of calendar, and so depending on how people do those conversions, some have it on the old style calendar date, some have it on our newer date of November seventh, but it is observed kind of across the world, especially in the Eastern Bloc. The logical conclusion here then again is could result to violence, could result to just a, an entire. You know, cultural war, that's, that's been a term that's been thrown around more recently than I've ever heard before. It's kind of almost scary that, you know, we can say that term so easily now that there's going to be a culture war, right? You're, again, let's go back to the age card for you. You're 25. How does someone like yourself, how do others like yourself, how, how do you have a more bright, hopeful future, especially for yourself, who is, you know, anti-communism? And, and I have a one-year-old son. And you have one? Yeah, that's right, right, right. I'd like to leave leave him a better country than I got. Um, the, the, the hope I have really is the, the socialist threat to America really does seem monolithic. We have the woke crowd, we have the politically correct crowd, um, and they come in and they make a lot of noise and there's a lot of rules. But I really do trust in the average American to kind of look at that and yeah that's getting a lot of attention right now and go mm, that's not really right 
um, we, we don't like that. We see this here in Texas. Um, historically, the Democrats have counted Hispanics in Texas as, yeah, we don't have to worry about campaigning to them. They'll always vote for us. Um, and as this border crisis has gotten out of control, Hispanics are going, we don't like this border crisis. You know, um, some people, some Hispanics in, in the South near the Rio Grande who have owned land for generations since before Texas was Texas, when it was still Tejas, and then some even tracing their, their ownership all the way back to Spanish colonists. Um, they're having to forsake these farms because of the way the violence at the border is, um, where we have the, the gangs and the human trafficking. And so suddenly people are going, well, these policies, they sounded good on paper, but now that I'm seeing them implemented, we don't like it. And that's always kind of the terrifying part of communism is communism, if you look at it in very simple terms and at its base value, it sounds like a great idea. Hey, everyone works and does what they can and they get what they need and there's no more hardship. Everyone does what they can and they get what they need. That's awesome. Um, but then we, we look at how it's actually implemented and it's not awesome. And so as more and more people are becoming kind of aware um, of, of what's going on, they're realizing that maybe these things that I thought sounded great aren't actually that great. Uh, and so we do see kind of this shift, the shift of people away from supporting the woke crowd, away from supporting uh, political correctness. And really the source of a lot of political correctness and the woke crowd is American universities. Um, they, they, they were, my grandma has a lot of conspiracy theories, some with more truth in them, some with not. She was like, the KGB has controlled the universities since the 60s. And it's like, okay, uh, maybe, probably not. But th there's definitely been a lot of socialist influence in the universities for a long time. And we see more and more universities like my alma mater, Hillsdale, like the just announced, uh, University of Austin, University that's going to be Austin, breaking right. ground here soon, that are pushing back against the woke agenda in universities. And they're saying, we're going to focus not on all of this ESG, not on all of these things that the politically correct crowd cares about. We're going to focus on studying truth. And we're going to focus on studying foundational documents and reading and discussing. And we're going to hire people from both sides of the spectrum to have uncomfortable conversations because we learn that way. Um, and as we become more tribal, we're talking to each other less and we're learning less. And the media and big tech are interested in keeping us tribal because that keeps us engaged. But more and more people are going to their neighbor and they're going, hey, th this can't be true. I know my neighbor's right and I'm left or vice versa. And they're not a horrible person the way the media wants me to think they are. Um, and so we're seeing more people at the grassroots level really start to come together as opposed to at the top where all we see is just kind of pundits yelling at each other and America becoming more and more fractured. I mean, the, that grassroots level is really, you know, i.e. translated talking in person again, kind of thing. Right. Which, you know, which, which is, you can going back to this idea, uh, I, I, I really was going to want, I was going to go a little bit more like, okay, let's go off topic from the, from this, but uh, now I can't help it because like now when we look at this idea of grassroots getting together, trying to kind of defeat the system. That means getting together in person. But, you know, I feel very strongly about how these vaccine mandates are coming down and creating another division of classes amongst Americans, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So. Yeah, those that that's a very problematic uh, division for me. I actually, um, not to like toot my own horn and advertise for myself, I did write an article on the vaccine mandates just yesterday, um, okay. kind of pulling in some of my grandma's experience, um, because what's terrifying to me about how the enforcement mechanism of the vaccines works is essentially they're not going to do any active investigation. They're going to wait for people to report their coworkers or their bosses or their companies. And then they're going to come in and start looking at private records to see if this is actually what happened. And what that stinks of to me is the informant system yeah. that the KGB relied on so heavily. Um, and my grandma, they were, like I, I said right at the start, the teachers were always asking her, hey, did your dad teach you anything? They're always trying to get her to, to rat out her dad. Um, and so this is that's another thing that's very close, close to me. I personally got vaccinated because my grandfather, uh, who married my grandmother, is a doctor. And he essentially said, it's better to get a vaccine than not get a vaccine. So get the vaccine. Um, and so I was like, OK, I guess that makes sense. Um, but <laughs> I reject the grandfatherly idea. wisdom right there. Keep it simple, <laughs> right? it's better to not get sick than to get sick. Okay. sounds good. Um, it, it was one of those things where it's like, I personally got it and that's a personal decision, but I have no right to force anyone I know. And I don't think the government has any right to force anyone. And again, that, that kind of puts us into this classist distinction between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. And even before that, we had the classist distinction of the very obvious one between the masked and the unmasked, um, where, if you were not wearing your mask in a public place, um, it, it could be illegal depending on where you were. In Texas, we had less of that, but in other states, there was much more of that. But even in Texas, you could get publicly shamed and kind of yelled at for not wearing your mask in a public space. And so, so me, I'll, I'll tell you this one quick little anecdotal story here. So, it, cause this just happened to me with regards to masked and unmasked. Uh, so, I was just at the LA Auto Show and I was there hanging out with a bunch of other like press and media people um, and was watching the debut of uh, Mullen Automotive and their new electric vehicle car. And, you know, let's say out of 100 people, 70% uh, fully masked, about 25% were like, you know, below the nose. And then the 5%, no one, you know, they weren't wearing a mask. I was in the 25%, okay? It did happen where there was an older gentleman that, you know, tapped on my shoulder and was like, sir, could you put your uh, mask above your nose? And I got to tell you, I got very defensive. I kind of responded to him sarcastically, like, how do you mean? You know, like, okay, you think I'm an idiot. I'll treat me like an idiot then. How do you mean? How do I put a mask over, right? Anyhow, I, I did feel like there was a bit cruel of a reaction. I'm, I'm going to try to do better. But again, that the, the division of mass versus unmasked has definitely played on me. And I've thought about it so long enough that finally when I was confronted, I, acted, I, I lashed out a bit. I mean, again, this is grassroots, right? Like he's, I'm actually in front of him now. But because of that distance away from people, like I immediately got so defensive upon that type of encounter. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's hard because especially with the pandemic separating us, we we kind of were like oh shocked uh, suddenly. Um, I was I was teaching during the pandemic for a good part of it, and so a lot of it was telling 
13 and 14 year olds, put your mask over your nose and mouth because I'm required to, because this is a school. And so nine, nine out of 10 of the kids would put their mask up here and be like, it's over <laughs> my nose and mouth. <laughs> oh, I gotta love the brilliance of these kids. <laughs> that was, oh, that was always, genius. Yeah. It, it, it was, it was very interesting because the, I taught at a charter school. Um, and so there was a very, very specific cultural background at the charter school. And most of the kids hated the masks and there was, they, there was always one or two students per class who were like very about the masks. And it was interesting because it turned into pretty much the rest of the class versus this one kid who was very passionate about the masks. And that is, that is kind of an example of where we, we get tribal, we get kind of classist over this mask issue. And that is something that is going to lead to problems in the future because we're getting tribal over masks we're getting tribal over vaccines. What's the next thing that we're going to get tribal and separate out into classes about? And that's problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, that's uh, it's, uh, it's a great uh, connection there. So let me ask you this, Austin, last question here, because, and, and maybe the most pivotal question here, right? So I firmly believe that in order for individuals to do well for themselves, for their families, that, you know, you have to make a series of good decisions in your life. You're involved in a space where you're trying to make the most influence and in ensuring that, you know, on the soils of the United States, that there is no uh, further progress of communism. You're trying to educate folks. You yourself, I'm sure, are always constantly learning and seeing all the nuances of it and, uh, and adjusting as need be. But how does someone like yourself, especially as a father, how are what is your kind of decision-making process? What is the art and science of Austin's decision-making process as he says, you know what, this is the next piece I'm going to work on because it furthers this educational goal or whatever it is. Like what goes on in your head on how you decide what to do how and how you do it? You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, so there, there's kind of two separate decision-making processes. There's like my personal one where I'm like, does this follow, fall into my morals and does it make me happy? And that's kind of my decision-making process. Does this make my family happy? Does it help my family's happiness? And that's kind of how I left teaching. And I ended up here at TTPF where teaching, God bless teachers. It's not an easy job. Um, <laughs> uh, but when it comes to like my professional life and I'm trying to determine what am I going to write about next? The, one of the first questions I always ask myself is, is this something I'm qualified to speak about or to write about? Because probably one of the worst things I could do if I'm wanting to defend freedom and defend liberty and oppose communism is to speak incorrectly or to speak uh, in the heat of passion, where like I'm angry about something, which I often am, and I just have to calm myself down. Um, or, or, or even another way, which I don't think you would do this, right? But almost speaking in a disinformation way too, which again, that's more diabolical. Mm -hmm. So yeah, of course it, you would it definitely never do is. That. And so there's a lot of things that I don't write about, even though I'm very passionate about it, because I know I'm not a subject matter expert. There's There's a lot of things about like the criminal justice system that I get really heated about but I don't know a lot. I've, I've never, I've never been involved with it. I've never gotten a ticket of any sort. Um, my wife has got like nine speeding tickets. Um, so she's much more involved than I am. Um, wow, threw her under the bus. <laughs> I didn't put her name out. So, um, but oh, yeah, that'll be hard to find, <laughs> but she, uh, it's, it's like, I I've never been involved with it and I don't know much about it. So I don't comment on it. Um, because, I, I would be commenting from a place of emotion and that 
is likely going to lead to me having a bad comment or saying something I shouldn't have. And so like my first step in my decision making process is, is this something I can speak intelligently about? And then the second is, is this something that furthers my goals? Because I could speak intelligently about like the philosophy of history and the philosophy of Aristotle, but is communicating that going to, is anyone one going to care? Um, and two, is that going to further my goals of fighting communism, of making sure that we can defend liberty? Probably not. Um, because again, if no one, if it's too boring for someone to read, then that's not helpful. And then finally is my last question on that decision-making process is, is this something that someone else would be better suited to? Um, because I am, I am more than happy. I am just one person and I can only have so much impact. If I have a good idea, but I know someone would do a better job of it, then I'm willing to hand that off. Um, but if I think I do a good job of it, then I'm, I'm going to write it. That's part of why I think both of the articles I've written so far, they involve my grandmother, because that's a unique experience um, and a unique history that only I have access, well, my, myself and my family, but here at TPPF, that's the only I have access to. And so that puts me in a category where it is something that I am uniquely good at, and it's not better saying, hey, one of my coworkers, you're an expert in this. I think this is something that needs to be said. Do you want to say it? Um, which sometimes, you know, I like the accolades. I want to write it, but I know it would be better for it to come from someone else. Uh, generally, someone with like a PhD next to their name or expert. <laughs> um, Oh, I love it. Uh, well, let me just ask one one follow up on that, okay? And and that is so for the first question that you would ask yourself, you know, are you qualified to speak on it? What is the criteria by which then you say that you know what I am qualified? Like, how how do you work through that? So my qualification for me really is is am I qualified to speak on it? Can I speak on it intelligently, or am I am I talking gut reactions, or have I? read have i researched have i thought about it okay, okay. Um, and that's that's where the qualifying comes from because and there's also some things i just don't have access to um, i don't understand the healthcare system i don't i've tried to i don't understand it and so I'll, I'll never be qualified to speak on it yeah okay fair enough all right austin how, how can people get in touch with you um, they can email me uh, at aprochko at texaspolicy.com um, and then the name's hard to spell, so there's my picture on the TPPF site, and it it should have the email on it. Yeah, and business class listeners, I'll put all of his information on the episode page to get in touch with him. Austin, thank you, sir. I appreciate uh, all your insight. I hope then, when will your uh, this most recent article be published? It went up yesterday, and it's up. going out tomorrow in the Daily Canon email. Okay, very good. All uh, And business class listeners, I'll then post that link on the episode page as well to read that. Austin, I hope we will do this again, and uh, I wish you all the best. I'll be following you, and then we'll see where all this ends, and uh, I hope there is no communism coming to the United States at all. Very much hopefully not, Um, but that's that's a fight because it really is such an attractive idea um, at, at its face value. Okay, business class listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode of Whisker Weekly. As we end every episode, cheers, prostel, chang, kitis, nastravi, salut, kampai, mobru, tutsin, gambe, yamas, nastrovie, vo, salute, and saudi to the customer experience.
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Wisco Weekly. Wisco Weekly is part of the podcast channel, Not Your Father's Economy, exclusively on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Economy, where you can receive bonus episodes, ad-free episodes that are intended to give you actionable insight to help you professionally and personally. Become a paid subscriber of Not Your Father's Podcast for just $8.49 a month or $94 for the year, and you can cancel anytime. Also, please consider giving Wisco Weekly a rating and review. It's much appreciated. Thanks for tuning in.